The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning. Uh, welcome to Westway Christian Church. Glad you're here today. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it to 2 Kings uh, chapter 22. We're going to be there at the very end of our message time today. We've got a whole host of other verses and texts that we're going to look at. Those are all in your bulletin, um, but we're going to be in 2 Kings 22 um, a little later. If you have any questions about our message time today, we'd love for you to send a text um, to the number that'll be on the screen or in your bulletin. Um, on Tuesday mornings at 11.15, we hop onto Facebook and do a Facebook Live video where we talk about those thoughts and questions. Um, there's a book called The Power of Habit, and it's written by uh, Charles Duhagen. He talks about the, the habits that shape each and every one of our lives. And each day, each one of us makes a, makes a series of choices that often aren't choices. We just, we just do a set of things because they're, they're so baked into who we are and the way we live our lives. But Dewey says that there are core habits in this book, things that will, if we do them, will dramatically shape every other aspect of our lives. Here's a few examples of what he says are core habits. The first one is making your bed early in the morning. How many bed makers are there um, in the room today? How many people never make your bed? Awesome. Um, see, my wife is raising her hand, and she's right. She never does make our bed. Um, people uh, do his uh, research found that, that people who wake up in the morning and the first thing they do is they make their bed, um, they're more intentional in their day, they're more organized, uh, they're more uh, orderly. Um, people who have a habit of exercising at least three times a week are more likely to watch their diet, they'll consume less alcohol, they'll pay more attention to, uh, to their sleep habits. People who journal regularly, according to Duig, tend to, tend to access the creative centers in their brain more um, than those who do not journal regularly. And today what we're talking about uh, this morning is reading Scripture as a core habit for the Christian. Let's uh, watch, this, uh, watch this quick video. You might have seen it on social media earlier this week. There was a recent study, Center for Bible Engagement, where they pulled 40,000 general population in the U.S. from 8 to 80, and they just wanted to see how we are engaging with Scripture. Right. And they discovered something that actually became kind of the profound discovery of the entire study. They weren't even looking for this, and this is kind of became the highlight of the study. Right. Um, When we're in the Scripture one time a week, and that could be church on Sunday, that's pastor saying you open your Bible, we hear the message, one time a week had negligible effect on some key areas of your life. So I'm going to spell that out more here in a moment. Two times a week, negligible effect. Now at three times a week, there was a blip on the map, like there was a heartbeat. Something happened, again, a heartbeat. But here was the profound discovery. When we're in the scripture four times a week, it literally spikes off the chart. You would expect that it'd be one, two, th- I mean, there'd be a gradual incline right. on the effect and impact that would have in your life, but it was literally one, two, three, four, something radically happens. Okay, you got my curiosity. To this what, extent. What kind of behavior is being affected? Feeling lonely drops 30%. Wow. Ang- four times a week in the four Bible. Four times a week in the Bible. Okay. Anger issues drop 32%. 
uh, bitterness in relationships, marriage, a relationship with your kids, and so on, drops 40%. Alcoholism drops 57%. Feeling spiritually stagnant. You know, if there was one area when I'm talking with people that, that they'll be honest about is they just feel spiritually stagnant. Ask them the question, how much time are you spending in Scripture? If they're in the Scripture four times a week or more, it drops 60%. Wow. Viewing pornography drops 61%. That's very important. Now, on a flip positive side, sharing your faith jumps 200%. Wow. Because you have a confidence in God's Word. And then discipling others jumps 230%. That's, That's amazing right there. So those... Those statistics are pretty startling. Um, The vast majority of real, honest conversations that that I've had with people um, in our church and in every other church that I've been a part of, the vast majority of those conversations and questions and concerns and problems that people are having um, center on those key issues. They center on issues of loneliness and anger and bitterness, alcohol and substance abuse, a, feel, a feeling of spiritual stagnation or some kind of sexual brokenness in their lives. And yet, when we, when we talk about as Christians, we talk about the importance of reading, of reading the Bible as a first step. Probably anyone in this room that's a Christian would acknowledge, yeah, that's important. I know that I ought to read my Bible more. I get that I ought to read my Bible more. And the question that we have to start asking ourselves is, does that, does that happen? Do we actually spend more time in God's Word? And I think a big challenge that, that Christians face is we don't necessarily understand what the purpose of the Bible is. We understand we're supposed to read it more. We feel like we're supposed to read it more. We know we're supposed to read it more. But we don't necessarily know what the Bible really is. I put a few things. This is in your, um, on the inside of your bulletin is this really big sheet. Today I decided we're just going to do a really big insert. So you'll see on the front side. Um, so there's a few things the Bible's not. Okay? So for the first off, the Bible, the Bible is not a life coach for you. The Bible is not a life coach. And that's how some people approach the Bible as though it's a life coach. They surround themselves, right, with all kinds of feel-good, positive Bible verses. Everybody loves Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and hope. Everyone knows that verse as Christians. But, but here's a verse that no one puts on their coffee cup. This is Jeremiah 17, 4. The wonderful possession I have reserved for you will slip through your hands. I will tell your enemies to take you as captives to foreign lands. No one puts that on a coffee cup, right? And, and here's the thing. We surround ourselves with all of these feel-good Bible verses. And then we read the Bible, and the Bible is not filled with Jeremiah 29.11s. The Bible is filled with verses that talk about things like this. So when we, when we read the Bible as our life coach, when that's our, when that's our perspective of what Scripture is, our reading plan very quickly fizzles out in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy because, because we're not getting a lot of positive affirmation, right? I want to be uplifted when I read my Bible, and Numbers doesn't do that for me. 
Here's another thing that the, that the Bible is not. This is how other peop- some people view the Bible. It's a prop. It's a front. You ever heard that phrase, swear on a stack of Bibles? I hate that phrase. As if, as if swearing on more than one Bible is somehow going to make you more honest in what it is that you're saying. I think these, these kinds of phrases just sort of enter into our vocabulary and we don't really think about what they mean. Because all sorts of people can, bo- can post Bible verses and talk about the Bible, but it doesn't have an impact on their life. If you want to sound like a Christian, then post a Bible verse. If you want to sound like you're having a great day, then post a Bible verse. But the Bible's not a prop. The Bible's not a front. Some people view the Bible as a, as a list of do's and don'ts. Right? I've talked about this before, like it's a BuzzFeed hack, li- hack list for us. But the Bible can be confusing for us, sometimes even contradictory. Listen to these two verses. This is Proverbs 24. 25.4 says this, Don't answer the foolish arguments of fools, or you will become as foolish as they are. Listen to the very next verse. Be sure to answer the foolish arguments of fools, or they will become wise in their own estimation. Obviously, I didn't put the right verses up on the screen. I want to read this again. This is, this is Proverbs 25.4. Don't answer the foolish arguments of fools, or you will become as foolish as they are. So don't answer fools. Here's the next one. Be sure to answer the foolish arguments of fools, or they will become wise in their own estimation. So which is it? Do we answer fools? Do we not answer fools? See, so the, Bible's not, the Bible's not a checklist of do's and don'ts for us. The Bible's also not a puzzle. It's not an enigma that we have to, we have to figure out what's going on. We have to solve it in order to truly understand what it really means. Because when we get into that point, when the Bible's an enigma, we have to ask this question. We start to ask this question, well, how does this apply to me? Well, what is the Bible? See, the Bible's a narrative. The Bible's a story of God. And every single person, we're simply in God's story. The Bible is God's story. It's about him. And see, God has an agenda for his book. This is something that a lot of us aren't, um, that a lot of us necessarily aren't used to. We might watch a movie and see that there's an agenda in it, but, but don't we like a little bit more, uh, more of a subversive agenda? Like, we don't want people to come out and tell us what something is. We're supposed to kind of watch it and engage it and kind of figure out what we're supposed to do. That's how a lot of us watch movies and read books, but the Bible has an agenda. God is telling us something about himself, and he's telling us something about us, and he wants us to know it. In John chapter 20, Jesus has appeared to the last of his disciples by the name of Thomas. He's the one that refused to believe in the resurrection unless he could see the holes in Jesus' hand and put his fingers into his side. That was, that was Thomas's story. So he appears to the disciples in John, and Thomas is present. And I imagine it was probably something like this. Thomas, I'm here. Come Come touch. Come, come touch my side. Come put your fingers into my side. And this is what Jesus said to Thomas after this. 
You believe because you have seen me. You believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. And it's shortly after this in verse 3 of John chapter 20 that John says this. These are written so that you may continue to believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. See, John has an agenda for writing his book. He has a purpose for writing his book. And what John says about Jesus is not, Jesus is your life coach. Jesus is not your life coach. You don't need to physically see him and experience him in order to know him as Messiah. What John is saying, if you just read what I wrote, if you just read the Gospel of John, you will come to the conclusion that Jesus is the Messiah. And this is really hard for us because we tend to, we tend to do what um, C.S. Lewis calls historical snobbery. What we tend to do is we tend to think like, well, if I had been in their shoes as a disciple, I would just believe. We tend to think, we put ourselves in the shoes of the Hebrews in the Old Testament. Well, I sure wouldn't have burned, uh, given them my gold for a golden calf. But they had God in front of them, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a second. Years later in John, in 1 John, John's telling the Christians that believing and trusting in Jesus lives to confidence and eternal life in him. And again, see, he's going to give an agenda. 513 in 1 John, I've written this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. This is my agenda. This is my agenda. I'm writing these things so that you know that you can have eternal life. And see, that's why Jesus also is not a prop or a front. Jesus' name isn't a good luck charm. It's not something that if you just repeat it in a certain way and a certain amount of times, that your life is going to be magically fine. Jesus' name is not a prop. It's not a good luck charm. John's saying that the Bible has an agenda. Believing in the name of Jesus leads to confidence in eternal life through him. And I would say if, if you're one of those people that's, that's living in perpetual wonder of your salvation, am I saved, 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 am I saved? I would suggest to you that, that the hope of your salvation might not be Jesus. I would suggest to you that the hope of your salvation might be something that you're trying to do in order to gain that salvation. Because what John is saying here is if we trust in Jesus' name, we can be confident in our salvation. I would love, I would love for you to be confident in your salvation. I would love for you to know that you can't out God's grace. I would love for you to know that God is for you and not against you. And if you believe in him and you trust in him, all the, all the worrying and all the anxiety that we have when we're trying to, are we really saved? Am I really a Christian? That can go away. But only by trusting in Jesus' name. So in the book of Romans, Paul talks about the way that Christians of differing maturity levels are to love and treat one another. We talked a lot about this last week. 
So even in this room, there are Christians who have different maturity levels. And we are called to love one another. We're called to love one another through things like humility and mercy and grace. We're called to not just please ourselves, is what Paul says. He quotes Psalm 69 and says that when we love other people this way, when we love people in this humility, when we love people in this mercy, when we love people with this grace, we can expect to be mocked for it. We can expect to see that life will be difficult for us. And then in Romans 15 verse 4, Paul says this, Such things, that's Psalm 69, were written in the scriptures long ago to teach us, and the scriptures give us hope and encouragement as we wait patiently for God's promises to be fulfilled. See, according to Paul, there's an agenda for scripture. There's an agenda for the Old Testament. It's not a checklist. The Old Testament law wasn't given to you. It wasn't given to me as a checklist. He's saying that following God faithfully is a lifestyle that we enter into. And when we participate in it, when we engage with Scripture, we receive hope and encouragement. One of the things I hope you know today is that being a Christian is not a checklist. It's a lifestyle that we engage in. And for you type A'ers out there, like me, who love checklists, relationship is really hard when we love checklists. But God is calling us into a relationship. He's calling us into a lifestyle. He's not just telling us what to do and what not to do. And I wonder, do you see how how having a faulty view of what the Bible is leaves us stuck in loneliness? Leaves us stuck in frustration and bitterness? How it leaves us stuck in spiritual stagnation when we approach the Bible incorrectly? See, in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about giving up his own will, his own rights, and pursuing God with all that he is and all that he has. He says that the Hebrews were in the very presence of God himself, the Jews in the Old Testament. They had been with God. They were in his very presence. They saw the pillar of cloud by day. They saw the pillar of fire by night. And this is the sign that so many of us as Christians wish that God would give to us. God, give me a sign. Let me know that you're there. See, the Hebrews had all that. And instead, they chose their own selfishness. Eating and drinking and sexual morality. They just chose to not be obedient. They chose to ignore the God that was physically present. And according to Paul, 23,000 of them died in one day because of that. They were judged by God. And in 1 Corinthians 10, 6, and 11, God, Paul again gives us the agenda of the Bible. These things happened as a warning to us. Man, but the Old Testament is so boring. I can't, it doesn't make any sense. God seems so mean. He seems so vengeful. He seems so unjust. He seems so nasty. These things were written as a warning to us. So we would not crave the evil things that they did or worship idols as some of them did. And then in verse 11, these things happened to them as examples for us. They were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. 
See, the Bible's not a puzzle. The Bible's not an enigma. And if we can just line up everything properly, we'll figure it out. The Bible has an agenda, according to Paul, and it's turning us away from our open selfishness and from our sin because we're living in the end times is what Paul is saying here. So when we reread the Bible, it's telling us why it's here. It's warning us. You, through the Scriptures, have food and drink provided by God. I have food and drink provided by God. And the question that I have to ask myself and we have to ask ourselves is, why, why aren't we eating of it? Why aren't we drinking from it? Because it's, it's here, you know, over the last 2,000 years, people have translated this from different languages into a language that most of us in the room can understand. And if you can't understand English, there are translations probably in your own language. If there aren't translations in your own language, there are people who are efforting all around the world to bring this text to them in their own language. So we have this. We have this obvious thing that God has given to us. He's given it to me and he's given it to you to sustain us and to warn us and to reveal us the truth about who he is. Why would we seek satisfaction in other things? Why would we pursue satisfaction from other things? The Bible has an agenda, and I would say the Bible is an agenda, and that agenda is to save you and it's to save me. Other times we've talked about how the Bible's a mirror, reflecting back the reality of God and reflecting back us. So, so what do we do with this story? There's a pastor by the name of Glenn Packham, and he has two suggestions. Actually, he had three, but I want to be mindful of time today. He had two suggestions. The first story is to enter, or the first suggestion is to enter the story. Enter the story. See, this is God's story. It's not ours. This book is God's story. It's not our story. Last month, uh, the final movie of what, or what's supposed to be the final movie of the original Star Wars series was released, called The Rise of Skywalker. And within a few days, this, this isn't a spoiler, okay? Um, you know, we're a little close still, so you have a little bit of time to see it. Um, so this isn't, isn't a spoiler for the movie. But within a few days of this movie being released, there was, a, there was a character that was introduced in, I think, episode 7, 7 or 8, which tells you something about the importance of this character that I can't remember when this person was introduced. But there was a character that was introduced by the name of Rose, and in the third, in this final movie, she had less than one minute of screen time. And in the days following the rise of Skywalker coming out, I know that not everyone in here is on social media, but there was all of this conversation about how Rose should have had more screen time. Why wasn't she in the movie more? She should have had more scenes. Why, wasn't, why did this take place? And the thing is, what was the name of the movie? It was The Rise of Skywalker. See, the movie wasn't called The Rise of Rose. 
okay? I'm not bashing Star Wars. I'm saying uh, our orientation is wrong. People have a faulty orientation. Because if the movie had been about Rose, you know what the movie would have been called? The Rise of Rose, right? That's what they would have called it. But the movie was called The Rise of Skywalker. And then, if that wasn't enough, other people began to weigh in to to the anger machine that is our culture. There weren't people like me in this movie. So fill in the blank. There weren't people who look like me, talk like me, act like me. There weren't, there weren't those kind of people, enough people like me in this movie. And John and I had this conversation. Like, this is, this is stunning for me in our culture. The fact, that, the fact that people can be upset because they're not affirmed by a fictional movie like, that staggers my mind. I don't, I don't know what to do with that, especially when our culture openly says, be who you are, but seek affirmation from a Star Wars movie. I'm not making a political point here. I'm saying as human beings, we have a bent to make things about ourselves. We have a bent to read this book and make it about ourselves. Which is why our first question, often after reading it, is, what does this have to do with me? What does this mean for me? What am I supposed to get out of this? See, I would suggest that, that our first question ought to be, what does this say about God? What does this book say about God. And in order to enter the story, we have, to, we have to immerse ourselves into the story. We have to recognize that our situation and our life is different from the situations and the lives of people in Bible times. This is a different culture. I said this a minute ago, but the Bible wasn't read in English or wasn't written in English. Anytime I teach any sort of how to study the Bible class, that's pretty much the first thing I say. Hey, the Bible wasn't written in English. And we all know that, and usually people laugh. But it's really easy for us to forget that this, this, this wasn't written in English, which means it's a translation from, from at least two languages that none of us except Dave Robinson, Aaron Prose, and like three other people in this room even know. So if it's written in a different language and it's a translation, it's probably going to take time, right? It's probably going to take skill that I have to learn as a Christian if I want to enter into it. It's going to require humility. And that's why the hurry up and read it mentality that many Christians have towards reading the Bible is is just so faulty. That's why the reading the Bible is not a checklist. We have to remember that it's his story, it's not ours. And if we don't know God's story, what we're going to be tempted to do is put God into our story. 
When we don't know God's story, we're going to try and put him into our story. We will demand that God function in our story. We will demand affirmation from God. We will demand that he respond to our commands. What do our prayers sound like? I, me, give me, I want, I need. Who's the center of that story? It's us, but that's not who the center of this story is. So we must, we must enter the story, and then we have to let the story enter into us. What difference has God's story made in your life as a Christian? Has it changed you? And I think part of the reason that it may not have had much of an impact on us is because we have a faulty view of what the Bible is, which is why we just spent time talking about that. See, we need to cast us off faulty understandings of the purpose of the Bible and embrace God's. If our only exposure to the Bible is a calendar filled with life coach verses, because if you notice that that's what they sell, get that calendar, 365 days, tear it off. It's always just positive and encouraging and affirming. And see, if that's our only exposure to God's word as his life coach, then we're rarely going to be challenged. We're we're rarely going to be confronted with the reality of who we are. And if all we ever do is see ourselves as the apple of God's eye, then it's our story and it's not God's. God loves you. God sent his son Jesus to die for you. God gave you the Holy Spirit to live inside you, to transform you into the image of Christ. All of those things are absolutely true. Praise God for them as the reality. But this is God's story. This is about God. He did that to bring honor and glory for himself. That's why he saved us. See, if the Bible is a prop for us, if it's just a front, at some point our life is going to catch up with what we're trying to portray to other people. And we'll be revealed as a hypocrite. Especially, you know, I love it. I love social media. Posting Bible verses one day and all kinds of other crazy stuff the next day. Which one of those is the real you? The Bible's not a prop. It's also not a checklist. Because if it is, if the Bible's a checklist, then when I miss, I'm going to feel overwhelmed with guilt and shame and embarrassment. I'm going to feel like a loser. And for some of you, I know I'm describing how you feel when you start off on January 1st for that Bible reading plan, and January 3rd rolls around, and you've already forgotten it. You've already missed it. I feel like such a loser. I feel like such a failure. Because see, then all you'll do then is you'll resolve to like white knuckle your way through the rest of the Bible. See, the Bible's not a checklist. If the Bible's an enigma for you, what you'll do is you'll feel frustrated by other people who seem to have it figured out. You'll wish that you could read the Bible like that person. You'll wish that you could understand the Bible like this person. And man, how did they figure that out? How did that align in their mind to put all of that together? 
See, according to the poll in that video that we watched earlier, major things happen in the lives of people that in, engage the Bible at least four, four times a week. And it is not, I want to make sure you saw it, it was not one, two, three, four. It was one, two, three, four. So how do we engage the Bible? How do we let it enter us? Part of this is conviction. So I would, what I would encourage you also to do today is don't, don't hear this message like, I'm coming down on you because we don't read our Bibles enough. What I'm saying is that might be God convicting you. God might be speaking to you, confronting to you what's going on in your life. And when we read the Bible in the way that, that we've been talking about now for almost three years, slowly and patiently and with humility, we're going to be confronted with the realities of our lives. We're going we're gonna to feel bad. There are going to be times where I'm going to read Scripture. And I've been reading the Bible for a long time. But there are times where often I read the Bible and God's like, he's got something to say to me. And that because, it's not because it's my story, it's because it's his story. And I read it and I feel conviction. I feel the weight of my sin. I feel the weight of my brokenness. So that's a, that's a sign that the Bible is entering into you. Let's go to the book of 2 Kings we're going to start at verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. His mother was Jedidiah, the daughter of Adiah from Bozkath. He did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight and followed the example of his ancestor David. He did not turn away from doing what was right. So... Any eight-year-olds in the room? Eight, nine-year-olds in the room? Okay. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. In the 18th year of his reign, King Josiah sent Shaphan, son of Azaliah, and grandson of Mesuzalem, the court secretary, to the temple of the Lord. He told him, go to Hilkiah the high priest and have him count the money the gatekeepers have collected from the people at the Lord's temple. Entrust this money to the men assigned to supervise the restoration of the Lord's temple. They can use it to pay the workers to repair the temple. They will need to hire carpenters, builders, and masons. Also have them buy the timber and finished stone to re re needed to repair the temple. But don't require the construction supervisors to keep account of the money they receive, for they are honest and trustworthy men. Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan, the court secretary, I found the book of the law in the Lord's temple. Then Hilkiah gave the scroll to Shaphan, and he read it. Shaphan went to the king and reported, Your officials have turned over the money collected at the temple of the Lord to the workers and supervisors at the temple. Shaphan also told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a scroll. So Shaphan read it to the king. When the king heard what was written in the book of the law, he tore his clothes in despair. Then he gave these orders to Hilkiah the priest, Ahikim, son of Shaphan, Akbor, son of Micaiah, Shaphan, the court secretary, and Azahiah, the king's personal advisor. Go to the temple and speak to the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judea. 
Inquire about the words written in this scroll that has been found. For the Lord's great anger is burning against us because our ancestors have not obeyed the words in the scroll. We've not been doing everything it says we must do. See, here's here's what happens when this 26-year-old gets the law. The story enters into him. The story takes control of his life. God takes control of his life. And for the next chapter and a half, I'm not going to read the rest of 22 and 23 to you, but Josiah is, is filled with God's spirit and absolutely goes on a rampage throughout Jerusalem and Judah. He sends people to a female prophet by the name of Huldah who tells them, you better obey the law. There's a reason you found that. You better do what it says. He gathers all of the elders and all of the priests and all the prophets and he reads the law himself to them. He tells the priests to go through out all of Jerusalem and all of Judah to remove and destroy all the altars of false gods from the temple. They're to be burned and the ashes are to be ground to dust. He orders the pagan shrines all throughout Judah to be destroyed. He has buildings destroyed and the priests of pagan shrines executed. He burns their bodies and then burns their bones on the altar. I'm not advocating murder. And I would argue that I don't know that God is necessarily advocating murder here either. But here's the thing. When God's story enters into us, We are filled with the Spirit in such a way that it sets us on fire for participation in God's kingdom. We won't have time for our own preferences and power and place and position because we're living for God's story. We're not living for our own stories. So here's my agenda in reading all of this to you today. This life change that... that Each of these authors, John and Paul, have talked about. It's what I and what our church leaders want for you. That's our agenda. We want to see your lives be completely upended in the service of God's mission. So when you come in here on a Sunday morning and you're like, man, it seems like we read a lot of scripture here. Yep, because we have an agenda for you. you. I want you to get into the story. I want you to enter the story. I want the story to enter into you. We absolutely have an agenda to be here on a Sunday morning. We absolutely do. See, when God's the point of the story, when God's the point of the story in my life, then I can lift him up. I don't have to, I don't have to bear the weight of trying to figure out what the purpose of my life is which is where I see so many people wrestle and struggle because the purpose of life is to honor God and in his word he tells us how to do that. Well, how do we do that? This sounds like every other sermon I've ever heard on Read Your Bible More. John, you could have said three words and we would have been done 35 minutes ago. Well, you know me. Flip over the insert and you'll see a number of recommended resources that 
pastors and elders have, have spent some time um, compile, compiling for you. I just want to briefly tell you about two today. Um, they're both under online resources and apps, um, under easy. The first one is an app called Dwell. This is an audio Bible app. Um, I think it's 29 bucks for a year. Gives you unlimited access. It has a number of Bible reading plans, also the entire Bible on it. Here's what I've been doing. I've had this app, I've had the, the not full version of the app for about six months now. Um, I bought the full version earlier this week, and here's what I've been doing. I get in my car, and I hit play, and then I've just been listening to the Gospel of Matthew. Just playing in my car. Just to enter into the story and have the story enter into me. And then here's, here's, the, other, um, here's the other online piece um, called The Bible Project. Uh, we've watched a number of Bible Project videos over the last few years. Um, this, uh, this resource, just BibleProject.com, this resource is a tremendous resource for you. They have videos for almost every single book of the Bible that are done in a style that make it easy to understand. They're fun to watch. They do, um, they do podcasts that are lengthy, that are time-consuming, um, and they are worth, uh, and that's to say the least, um, and they are worth every minute that you listen to those. I often listen to Bible Project podcasts when I run. So go outside, hit play, and that's what I do. And lastly, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to encourage you to, to pick a resource off of here and engage it. These are really simple ways to engage in the Bible. I'm going to encourage you to get connected to a small group because as important as it is for me to read the Bible on my own, I need the accountability and the relationship of other people to say, hey, I don't know if the Bible really says that. See, that's what happens when we are engaged in relationship with one another is we can hold one another accountable. We can talk about it in community. Community helps us engage and enter the story on his terms and remember that it's his. I can have people ask me what's different in my life because of what I'm reading in God's story. Let's pray. God, thank you for giving us your story. Thank you for giving it to us in a way that, that we don't have to figure it out. We don't, have to have a, we don't have to have a degree in Greek or Hebrew in order to read your word. We can, we can enter into this story as it's written. Thank you for sharing us with us your story. God, thank you for, for making this life not about us. I need a life, we need a life that is about you, about your desire for us. I pray that we would not see your word as a checklist or a, or a prop. We wouldn't see Jesus as a life coach, but we would see it for what it is, a warning and love. And it's in your son's name we pray, amen.